0: Good morning. Well, this morning we have the opportunity to be in Daniel chapter 3. You can turn to Daniel chapter 3 with me. And in Daniel chapter 3, we're going to learn something that's true today. It's, it's, It's as true today as it was back then. The world wants something from you. The world wants something desperately from you. The world wants you to bow. If you'll remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, one of the things that Satan wanted from Jesus, in fact, he was willing to surrender all of the kingdoms of the world, the very, things that, uh, the very places and the people that Jesus came to save, he was willing to offer all of that for, for one little thing, if Jesus would simply bow. What we're going to learn in Daniel chapter 3 is nothing's changed from then till now. The world wants more than anything else for you and I, for we to bow, for us to bow before all of the powers of darkness that run this world. And so, as we know that truth, let us set our our hearts right before God. And as Paul says in Ephesians, when he writes to the Ephesian church, let us do all that we can to stand. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And now as we open our hearts and Make our hearts available to you, Lord. May we know in our hearts what you've called for us to do and what you've called us to and, and, and how to stand, to trust you in times of persecution and trial. And may we follow the examples of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who did not bow, who refused to bow to the world and its ways. May we do likewise in this wicked world today, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well let's start by reading verse 1 of chapter 3 in the book of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He's setting up an image. And it's no coincidence that he had just had a dream recently that Daniel it was able to interpret supernaturally and that the dream was of an image. That's not a coincidence. Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, and he set it up in the plain of Dura in Babylon. And and as we read about this, it seems, he seems, that is Nebuchadnezzar, to have built a large version of the image that he had seen in his dream. So what he saw, he built. Now in his dream, only the head of the statue was gold. But because that represented Babylon, he put up this giant image... And it was completely made of gold, or at least covered in gold. And of course, the statue we learned last week spoke of the glory of world power apart from and against God. So he's celebrating the world powers. He's not celebrating God at all. The power of the world is what the world wants you to bow to. The power of the world. That is the authority of the world. The authority of governments, monarchies, democracies dictatorships, the world's power. Now, as the king of the Babylonian Empire, he, we were told last week, was the head of gold. And then he erects his statue completely of gold. And if we had a picture of it or an image of it, we would know what it looked like. But when people read this, they look at the dimensions and they say, well, it must have been an obelisk similar to like the Washington Monument because it's so thin compared to its height but I want to remind you of a statue that we're all very familiar with right over here in the New York Harbor called the Statue of Liberty and that statue of course sits on a pedestal that is very high which means the height of the statue was probably incorporating the pedestal that the statue was placed on so rather than looking like an obelisk it was an image a statue that was ninety feet high as we've read and yes nine feet wide but remember that the statue was probably just a portion of the overall height. So hopefully that helps you to envision it, to see it in your mind's eye. But he was filled with pride. This man was filled with self-importance after receiving this dream and its interpretation. He felt so important that he decided to make an image of what ultimately was his own image. He essentially made an image of himself. And wanted everyone, as we'll see, to worship it. Now here's the thing. What he envisioned, what he saw, was true. It was divine truth given to him by God. And yet, even divine truth, if not tempered with humility, can breed pride. So God reveals something to you and now you become proud about what God has shown you. And now all of the revelation of what God has made clear is undone by the fact that you have become proud in your knowledge and understanding. Remember that Paul was given a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. And if God has revealed divine truth to you, let me promise you from personal experience (laughs) that when God reveals divine truth to you through his word or otherwise, you will receive that thorn. That That is, you will experience trials that will keep you humble. Anyone who's ever decided to stand up and say, I will serve the Lord with my life, knows that the next thing that happens is you are buffeted in the flesh. And of course, we know, and we'll get to this next week, that Nebuchadnezzar would be severely humbled within a very short period of time. But not yet. So he was impressed with the God of Daniel, who could reveal his dream to him and the interpretation, as we saw last week. But he had absolutely no heart for God. He was impressed by God, yet he had no heart for God. There are a lot of people out there that will say all wonderful things about God. They're impressed by God, but they don't know God. And that's where Nebuchadnezzar is at the moment. Now, one of the things we're going to see in this chapter in particular is that elements of each section of this chapter have a prophetic type or symbolism that points to a time in the future, a time of great tribulation, And you can see the image itself is a prophetic type of what we call, what Daniel called, the abomination of desolation. For you see, Daniel predicted that a similar image would be set up in the temple in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And indeed, there was a time before Christ where an image was set up in the temple by a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Yes, that's true. But Jesus testified that Daniel's prophecy would be fulfilled in the future. And we know that will happen. In fact, Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 taught that the coming Antichrist will set up an image in the last days. And John, of course, received a revelation. And in the book of Revelation, the Lord revealed to John how Daniel's prophecy would ultimately be fulfilled. Now, this has not been fulfilled yet. But if you're interested, and we'll get to it eventually, because after we finish the book of Daniel, we'll be studying the book of Revelation. On Sunday mornings. That's sort of a preview. But when we get to Revelation 13, verses 11 through 18, you will see exactly how the Lord revealed to John what would take place in the future regarding the abomination of desolation. So while this happened in the past and it would happen in Daniel's future or in the future, it will happen again. We call that thematic prophecy. That is, all biblical prophecy has a theme that's repeated and repeated in greater degrees until it's ultimately fulfilled. So you'll see types in the scripture of sacrifice for sin. And it starts way back in the Garden of Eden when God clothed them with the skins of animals. And over and over again, the time of Abraham, the time of Noah, all the times that, that God dealt with man, sacrifice would happen. And that image or prophetic type of sacrifice was a theme. And that theme was repeated over and over again until Christ came and died on the cross for our sins. And now there remains no sacrifice for sin. So that prophecy or that theme has been completed. It no longer needs to be fulfilled because it's been fulfilled completely. But there are many prophecies, like the abomination of desolation, that are still being fulfilled and have yet to be completely fulfilled. Everything about the Hebrew mindset in the scriptures indicates what we call progressivism, not the kind of progressivism that we're familiar with in politics today. Progressivism. When you read Hebrew poetry, Hebrew poetry, is, it's not about the rhyme, it's about the progressivism. That is, you say something like, God is good, and you say it again like, God is very good. And then you say, in all the earth there is none like God, for God is great and good. That would be an example of an English form uh, or an English example of Hebrew poetry in its form. Uh, the idea is to say something, say it to a greater degree until ultimately you've said it. Are you with me? So you see, that mindset also not only exists in poetry, but prophecy, which is very similar to poetry in the Hebrew mind. Sometimes it actually is poetic prophecy. But in this case, you have these themes that are being repeated, and every time they're repeated, they're repeated to a greater degree until ultimately they're completely fulfilled. So now that you understand that, it's going to be easier to understand biblical prophecy, and especially the book of Daniel. Now, as we look at this, we realize Daniel predicted this image would happen. He, he said it would, and it will, and it did. So the theme was repeated. But now Nebuchadnezzar dedicated the image of gold and commanded all those who were present to fall down and worship it. And so, we read in Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 2, all the way through verse 7. Nebuchadnezzar then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. And then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold, that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations and men of every language, fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It's not hard for us to imagine a world where laws are passed that demand we bow and have the majority of people simply bow. Now, there are some people that will suggest that the mark of the beast has something to do with some of the vaccine mandates and some of the restrictions we've experienced over the last few years. That would be rather silly to say. Yet there are some people that believe that. Why? Because people can be silly sometimes. I don't know. But the truth of the matter is that these are just examples of an overreach on the part of government demanding us to do things against our personal freedom. And it sort of precedes, or not really predicts, but at least foreshadows, what we can expect to happen in our world as things progress. There will be laws passed, hopefully not in our nation, but who knows? There will be mandates. There will be demands and commands that we are expected to follow that will really. Look to help us or push us to violate our faith. To disobey God in order to obey man. Bill read that scripture in opening. The fear of the Lord. Well, the fear of the Lord will keep you safe, but the fear of man will do what? It's a snare. It's a trap. We must do all that we can to stand for God. Not in an aggressive way. But listen. Today, this week. And into next week and probably for most of the summer, there will be and have been crowds of angry people that want to kill their children. They're so determined that they have signs that say they want to kill their children. And they want to kill you if you suggest they shouldn't kill their children. Oh, that sounds like an exaggeration, but it's not. We're living in a world that wants you to bow to wickedness and evil will you bow? Well, that's the question we have to answer in our hearts. So we see here that he summoned all of these officials to attend his dedication, and the majority of them obeyed him and assembled. Now, Daniel is not mentioned in this chapter. And as the ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief of the Magi, I believe he simply chose not to attend. But Daniel remained at the royal court as the chief administrator So he's not mentioned in this chapter. You're thinking, well, did Daniel bow? Why wasn't he thrown in the fiery furnace? Well, we don't know where Daniel was, but we'll see that that may tell us something about the future as well. Nebuchadnezzar's command for them, well, the people to worship the image was in direct conflict with God's word. And when a command, mandate, or law is in direct conflict with the law of God... We stand for God. We don't bow to man. Remember the apostles in the first century church. When the Jewish leaders told them, they were Jews as well, that they shouldn't preach in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they said, we have to obey God rather than man. This needs to be our heart, brothers and sisters. Not in an aggressive, rebellious way, but in a confident assertive way, we need to insist on serving God regardless of what the world tells us to do. Now, one of the things we learn is they were beginning to worship the moment that they heard the sound of music. Now, I don't mean that play. The sound of music is any type of music that they would play, they needed to bow. And isn't it amazing that maybe we don't do this to music, but the minute someone says we're supposed to do something in this world, all kinds of people line up to do it. Have you noticed? Well, of course they do. They're of the world. They belong to the world. The spirit of the world is in them. But when Christians who love God bow without even thinking twice, you have to at least ask yourself the question, why? Why? Are you so fearful of losing some privilege or right that you're willing to sacrifice your relationship with God to keep it? It mentions a number of musical instruments here, by the way. Side note, and being a musician, this is important to someone like me. The list includes several Greek instruments with Greek names. Not Hebrew names, not Aramaic names, Greek names. See, Greek culture was already well-developed by this time. And these instruments would have been very common in Babylon... So this shows us that the Greek Empire was already beginning to emerge even several hundred years before the Greek Empire emerged. We know that, of course. But anyone who refused to bow would be thrown into the blazing furnace if they refused to obey. Now those present, of course, obeyed. They obeyed Nebuchadnezzar's command, and they worshipped. That is, they bowed down before, submitted to the image when they heard the music. That is to say... The image represented world power, specifically and especially Nebuchadnezzar. And when the music played, they bowed. What we do understand is that when you bow to a world power, you are an idolater. You understand that? Whether you physically bow to an image or not, you are an idolater when you place anything or anyone above God. So all of these idolaters, many of them Jews. Oh, they're all bowing. How easily those that were present bowed to his will. Those that belong to the world will always bow to its pressures and lifestyles. We can expect that. You can count on it. It makes sense. But how bruised, brothers and sisters, a question you need to answer in your heart. How bruised are our knees from bowing to the world? Now, the absence of Daniel... It's also a prophetic type, a theme, if you will. It's a theme or a prophetic type of the rapture of the church. For you see, his absence is conspicuous during this time of tribulation in Babylon. Where's Daniel? Why isn't Daniel there? Well, he was there, but he's not mentioned. Now, of course, he may have been traveling or simply protected by his high position. He was the chief administrator of the entire area under Nebuchadnezzar. It's more likely, though, that Daniel and his friends simply chose to ignore the king's command. They didn't bow. We know they didn't bow. They didn't go. They wanted no part of it. And they were willing to face the consequences, as we will see. But, brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you that myself, as a Bible teacher, embrace a view which not everyone here may embrace— And you can embrace a different view and still love God and be a Christian, but I'm going to share with you that I believe the church will also be absent during the Great Tribulation of the last days. Now, some argue that the Great Tribulation, and there's some truth to this, is only the last three and a half years of the seven years of tribulation. And so they believe that the church will be raptured some point before those last three and a half years. There are others like myself who believe it's probably more likely, and I say probably because I don't know, But it's probably more likely that it will be before the seven years of Daniel's 70th week. And then there are some that believe that the church will be here through the entire time of tribulation. And they'll be raptured just, just before the Lord returns. So you may be pre, you may be mid, you may be post. But one thing we all agree on is that the Lord is going to return with his saints. Amen? So there is a rapture. There's no question about that. We don't really know To be honest, we don't really know when it happens. Do you know that technically, according to prophetic interpretation, the rapture of the church may take place tomorrow? And the 70th week of Daniel may not begin for many decades. I mean, there's no reason that can't happen. I don't believe that will happen. I think it's much closer, but we don't know. The important point to recognize, though, is this could be a prophetic type that Daniel is absent during this chapter, kind of points to this idea, and that's what it is. It's a theme, it's a concept, or maybe it doesn't, that the church will not be there during the time of the abomination of desolation, which will take place in the middle of that last seven-year time period called either the tribulation period or Daniel's 70th week. And we'll get to that in chapter 9. Well, the church... I believe we'll be caught up to the throne of God before the great tribulation of the last days. But whatever the case may be, we know we will be protected by our high position as the bride of Christ. Amen? Regardless, let's not get caught up in things we can't possibly know. But some of the astrologers had a problem with this. They denounced Daniel's friends as Jews who ignored Nebuchadnezzar's command. And so we read in verses 8 through 12... At this time, some astrologers and by the way, any time an astrologer gets involved, no good can come of it. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews, and they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, "O oh, king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the here we go horn flute, zither, lyre, harp pipes and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold." And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Parents, what do we call this? A tattletale. Right? When you were little, you'd go to your parents and tell on your siblings. And you thought, I'm just doing the right thing. And to your surprise, your parents would say, don't be a tattletale. What? These guys have an agenda. And the agenda of the world is to point out when we refuse to bow to the world. So, when... There are people in our, in our sphere of influence at work or at school or in our neighborhood who point out that we're not following the rules of the world. They point their bony finger at you and they expose you for serving God. Why should you be surprised? How many times have we heard stories of someone hosts a Bible study and there's a few more cars on the street and so they call the police now, if you were having a keg party, no one would call the police. But because you're having a Bible study and people are walking out with their Bibles and hugging each other, your neighbor looks out their window and goes, look at those people. That's how people like that talk. <laughs> Have you ever noticed? They always talk like, that. at least when we imitate them. Look at those people over there. Oh, those Christians. You know what I'm going to do? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. What are you going to do? I'm going to call the police. Are we surprised when the world reacts that way? I read an article just yesterday. It was put up on one of these liberal news outlets. They were criticizing homeschoolers, suggesting that homeschool is dangerous because it's a plot by evangelicals to undermine the public schools. Not that there's a plot by public schools to undermine the very fabric of society. So you see... You can't bow. Once you bend the knee, it's over. You understand that, right? It's over. Well, back to our text. These subordinates betrayed these men for their devotion to the God of Israel. They hated them. Why did they hate them? Because the world hates us. Or did you forget what Jesus told us? Why did they hate them? Well, because they were Jews and they were an authority over them. We should expect the ungodly to accuse us out of envy or for selfish gain. We should expect to be noticed for our devotion and our unwillingness to compromise. We should expect it. They hated Daniel as well. But you know what? Notice they didn't dare to betray the ruler over the entire province of Babylon. They went for some of the underlings. They weren't bold enough to suggest that their boss, the top guy, didn't bow They wanted to undermine his authority by going after some of his subordinates. And so they went after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now listen, another prophetic type. Another prophetic type. There are many. One in each section, actually. Their hatred of Daniel's friends is a prophetic type of what we call today anti-Semitism. The hatred of Semitic peoples, which is actually a greater and larger group of people than just Jews. Did you know that Semitism, or the word for Semitic, actually comes from the name Shem, the son of Noah? And there were many people groups who were descended from Shem, pretty much the whole Middle East. But we use the term anti-Semitism in particular to describe a hatred of God's people, the Jews. Throughout the centuries, many have been jealous of Jewish accomplishments, and there have been many, many. And unfortunately, this pervasive attitude will continue right up until the last days. It is a satanically inspired bias designed to poke directly at a group of people that he calls the apple of his eye. That's what anti-Semitism is. Well, Nebuchadnezzar confronted Daniel's friends for ignoring his command. Look at verses 13 through 15. Of course, he confronted them. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the... Here we go one more time. Maybe not one more time. I think that that might be it. Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kind of music... If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God may be able to, or will be able to, to rescue you from my hand? Well, that's something, isn't it? He wanted them to explain their unwillingness to obey him. Now, this man was well-known, as we said last week, well-known for becoming furious when he was disobeyed. And he confirmed that the accusation of the astrologers was indeed true. So what Nebuchadnezzar did is he gave them every opportunity to worship the image in direct conflict with God's word. Oh, I'll give you a second chance. Oh, I'll give you a third chance. They were to begin worshiping the moment they heard the sound of music. They would be thrown into a blazing furnace if they refused to obey. Will they bow? Well, we know they won't. But Nebuchadnezzar desired for them to compromise their faith in order to spare their lives from death. Has anyone threatened your life? Probably not. That is, they threatened your life saying, if you, if you don't stop serving God and you, start, you don't start serving government, we're going to kill you? Probably not. But what if they did? That day will surely come to pass. And it happens every day in countries throughout our world. It's not as if this is something that isn't already taking place. Persecution is real. Christian martyrdom is real. We're not experiencing it in this country yet, and hopefully we never will. But listen, you better determine now if you're going to bow or not. Because the day may come where you have to make that choice. I hope it doesn't. But it may very well happen. And to a lesser degree, it may happen as well. Well... He questioned what God, what God was powerful enough to rescue them from his authority. This man is filled with pride, threatening them with bodily harm, trying to instill doubt in them by mocking them. Listen, Satan's attacks have changed very little over time. Read Genesis 3, verse 3. Did God really say? Well, yes, he did. And when similarly tested, Do we succumb to his empty threats? How quickly do we bow? Well, Nebuchadnezzar is also a prophetic type of the false prophet who will emerge on the scene in the last days. You can read about him in Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 through 18. The false prophet will one day lead the apostate Jews to ally with apostate Gentiles. I believe he will be a Jew posing as Messiah and ruling over Israel during the last days. I'm not talking about the Roman Antichrist. I'm talking about the Antichrist or false prophet that will lead God's apostate people in the last days. He may even be the one overseeing the rebuilding of the Jewish temple until he defiles it and desecrates it. But we'll get to more of that later on in our studies in Daniel. But I want to point out for now that what Daniel chapter 3 does is it sets up the prophetic themes and types that we'll elaborate on later on in our study of this book and also into the book of Revelation. Well, Daniel's friends, of course, would have none of it. Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king "O Nebuchadnezzar, We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter if we are thrown... Into the blazing furnace, the God we serve, the God whom we serve, is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But, even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Amen? That's what it looks like when people stand. They look at threats and death in the face, and they say, no, I will not bow. And I'm not going to defend myself. And if God wants to spare me, he will. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow. We're not going to bow. Say it with me. We're not going to bow. You know, it's interesting. I saw something else in the news this weekend. Those (sighs) murderous protesters, that are out there on the streets of cities right now have essentially said, We are going to become ungovernable. You know what they're saying? We're not going to bow. Isn't it interesting? The enemies of good and of God are not going to bow. But will those children of God who are faithful to God bow? That's what we have, wait- we have to wait and see. And I hope all of us will answer that question in our hearts. Well, as we look at this portion of scripture, we read about what was taking place. We realize that Daniel's friends confronted Nebuchadnezzar. They refused to obey his command. They were unshaken by Nebuchadnezzar's threat. They didn't feel the need to defend themselves or their faith in the God of Israel. We're going to waste their time doing that. They trusted in the God of Israel to be their defense. Amen? They were willing to accept persecution for their commitment to their God. They had complete and total faith in God's ability to deliver them from the blazing furnace. Do you? They trusted in the God of Israel to rescue them from the authority of Nebuchadnezzar. Their trust and their hope and their faith was in God. And they were willing to die rather than disobey God's word. You know, a lot of churches don't even know God's word. How are they going to stand for it? That's why we teach the word of God here at Calvary Chapel. But you still have to make a decision to stand. They didn't trust in God's deliverance. They trusted in God, their deliverer. Whatever took place. And by the way, where were all the other Jews? From Jerusalem. I'll tell you where they were. They were bowing down. These three men are shining examples of how we must live in this world each and every day. Now, another prophetic type. Daniel's friends are a prophetic type or a theme of the Jewish remnant, which will exist in the last days. The book of Revelation in chapters 7 and chapters 14 tell us that there will be 144,000 Jews who will be faithful to God in the face of severe persecution during the last days. They will not bow. Many of their brothers And fellow Jews will deny God and bow to the Antichrist. But God will preserve these 144,000 during the time of Jacob's trouble or Daniel's 70th week or the time of tribulation while many others will die. God will preserve them the way we'll see he preserved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Again, another prophetic theme being introduced early on in the book of Daniel. Later will be expounded upon and we'll understand more. Well, Daniel you know, may not be around. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego become these shining examples. And what did Nebuchadnezzar do? Well, we know what he did. Read with me, verse 19 through 23. We'll read the section. We read that then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This guy got furious a lot. And you'll notice that, that the enemies of God and his word, when they can't win the argument or they can't get what they want, they resort to rage. And in that article I read, the enemies of life are saying this is going to be a summer of rage. Very little has changed. Well, we read there that he was furious with them and his attitude changed toward them. He ordered the furnace heated seven times. That's an idiom that is as hot as it could be. Hotter than usual. And commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... And throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. And the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. We're probably familiar with this. If you grew up going to church, you've read this in Sunday school. But I want to give you a little bit more insight here. Nebuchadnezzar had Daniel's friends thrown into this furnace. Now his attitude toward them changed when they refused to obey. He was, as we said, well known for becoming furious when he was disobeyed. Don't let people's rage and fury cause you to bow. He was totally overcome and controlled by his anger. Don't you do likewise. Don't you respond in kind. They didn't and you shouldn't. But he ordered, that is, Nebuchadnezzar ordered that the blazing furnace be heated as hot as possible. By the way, <clears throat> you ever wonder why they just happened to have a blazing furnace sitting around? When I was a kid, I'm like, is that normal? He's kind of, you know. I mean, we have grills at home, but we don't typically have a blazing furnace that we can heat seven times hotter just because. Well, this furnace would have been used for smelting the very gold that was used to build the image, it was a smelting furnace. And they were constantly using it. The raw materials were lowered into the furnace through an opening on the top. You always use gravity to your advantage. So they did. And these openings were also used to vent the extreme heat of the furnace. He ordered the immediate execution of Daniel's friends. They're bound by some of the strongest soldiers in the army. And they're thrown into the furnace through the opening at the top. Are you with me? Now, it probably was just a few feet down, but that's how they threw them in. But the flames of the furnace killed the soldiers as they threw Daniel's friends into it. You see, the furnace was heated far too quickly and consumed all of the oxygen within it. We call this a backdraft. When the door or vent was opened on the top, the backdraft caused a fireball that killed the soldiers. That makes perfect sense. By the way, brothers and sisters, know this. Those that seek to destroy God's children will themselves be destroyed. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's persecution is also a prophetic type. And I'm just introducing you to themes today. We're not going to go into elaborating them because we're going to do that later on. But for now, Nebuchadnezzar's persecution is a prophetic type of the persecution of Israel, which is talked about in Revelation chapter 12. Israel will be persecuted during the last days. But the Jewish remnant will stand against the false prophet's outpouring of rage, and God will preserve them, as testified to by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, the flames will not kindle upon you. You'll pass through the fire and not be burned. Well, the God of Israel did not abandon Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And of course, most of you know the way this ends, but Let's go over it. In verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Well, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants, of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors, or tattletales, crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed, their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. I sit around a fire pit for five minutes, and you don't want to be near me. You know, that smell it smells so good. till so you go inside the house and you're like, what's that smell? Oh, it's me. You really can't get the smell of fire or smoke off of you very easily. Well, it never entered them. It was never on them. And by the way, the only thing that seems to have burned were the ropes. God is good. Amen. Nebuchadnezzar was amazed. He sees four men walking around in the fire. Now he's able to see them. Why is he able to see them? Well, he was able to see them walking around freely in the blazing furnace because the furnace had an opening on the side or bottom where metal could be removed. They would lower the raw materials to the top and then remove the finished products from the side. So they're watching from the side. The furnace had that opening on the side or the bottom. And this is how the king's able to see them. Now, they're no longer bound. They're unharmed. But most importantly, they're not alone. And you need to know that when you stand for God, you're never alone. Where two or three are gathered, he's in the midst. He will never leave you nor forsake you. When you stand for God, you stand with him. Or should I say, he stands with you. When you bow to the world, you bow alone. You need to understand that. Or was it, What was it that Jesus said? If you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. And if you don't, I won't. They're no longer bound. The same flames that had killed his strongest soldiers had not harmed them at all. God is always present. Always present with his children in the midst of tribulation. And you need to know you can count on God never abandoning you. Amen? And this has been the sworn testimony of many faithful suffering saints throughout the centuries. But let's talk about the fourth man. He described the fourth man as the son of the gods. Now, there were three of them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this isn't the fifth beetle. This is something different, someone else who's described as the fourth man. Clearly something otherworldly and supernatural about this man. By the way, the ancient Babylonians believed that the offspring of God, or of the gods, were supernatural beings. And they believed that they would sometimes appear and perform miracles. This, This was true of the Greeks and the Romans as well, but this predates that. God was revealing himself to Nebuchadnezzar. You need to know that. God is working. This isn't about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as much as it's about Nebuchadnezzar. We'll get to the next chapter. We'll see this is just a step in the direction that God was bringing this king. He's revealing himself to Nebuchadnezzar, clearly working in his life as well. Now, it's true. The Lord himself may have appeared to Daniel's friends in the blazing furnace in physical form. The Bible tells us no one's ever seen God at any time. And yet, this may be, and I say maybe because it could have simply just been an angel, but it may be a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That does happen. We sometimes call that a Theophanies or a Christophanies, an appearance of God in human form, not flesh, human form in the Old Testament. But regardless whether it was God's angel or the Son of God, God never abandoned them. And of course, now, of course, his attitude toward Daniel's friends changed again. Now that they've been saved, he called to them, asked them to come out of the fire. Interesting, he had to ask them to come out. So clearly it wasn't uncomfortable. And they came out of the fire. To the amazement of all the tattletales, all those governing officials of Babylon, completely unaffected by the flames, of the blazing furnace. Now listen, if you and I, if we do go into the fiery furnace and we're consumed, we're coming out of that furnace anyway. The part of us that is eternal will come out of that furnace and spend an eternity with God, unharmed, perfect for all eternity. You can't lose when you trust in God. Well, the blazing furnace is also a prophetic type. It's a prophetic type of the refining work of God's tribulation. See, we look at tribulation as a bad thing. God looks at it as a refining work. Trials, persecutions, difficulties are working for us. Or did you forget the scripture that says all things are working together for those who love God and are called according to his purposes? As Jacob found out, he thought all things were working against him when he lost Joseph, only to find out that all things were actually working for him in Egypt. Well, what does persecution do? What does tribulation do? It loosens those that are bound. Amen? It enables those that are down to get up and walk around. It proves God's faithfulness. It proves God's faithfulness to us and brings us even closer to him. And there's your prophetic type. Well, we get to the end of this chapter. We read in verse 28, that then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command, <clears throat> excuse me, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I decree, that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. That may be a bit extreme, but essentially saying can't say anything bad about God. Imagine living in a world like that. Can't say anything bad about our God. No, we live in the world where you can't say anything good. Because evil's being called good and good evil. But hopefully that will change. I believe it can if God wills. Nebuchadnezzar praised their God. He acknowledged that their God had rescued them from the blazing furnace. Because God had sent an angelic messenger to save them. Why? Because they trusted in him. They had defied his command. They were willing to die rather than disobey God's word. This man was clearly impressed. With their miraculous deliverance and their devotion to God. How could you not be? But if they weren't persecuted, that testimony never would have been given. He had declared in the past, we saw this last week, that Daniel's God was a God of gods and a Lord of kings. You might say, an important God. But he now praised their God and acknowledged their faithfulness to him. He's getting closer because God is bringing him closer. Well, he now had a better understanding of the God of heaven, but he didn't serve him, not just yet. We'll see next week that he will, eventually. Things had to happen first. Well, he issued this decree to honor their God, protect his name and his reputation, as if God needed that. But his threat against those who would criticize their God shows an ignorance of God's grace. And there have been times in the church and even in in our nation where the attitude of people of faith was, well, we have to persecute people that don't have faith of what he's doing here. That's equally evil. You realize that, right? If we were to say this is a Christian nation and now we have to drive out all the people that don't think the way we do or persecute them, that would be wrong. That would be evil. But hasn't that happened or have we forgotten the Spanish Inquisition in Europe? Have we forgotten the persecutions that have taken place over the last 2,000 years by Christians against, or so-called Christians, against actual Christians or Jews or Muslims or all types of people who think and act differently than they do. This is a satanic evil. And we must never take that approach to sharing our faith. We have to be tolerant of others in the sense that we allow them to disagree with us. That can separate us from the wicked mobs out there. We need to be tolerant of people who are intolerant of us but never do we bow. We stand. Amen. Examine your heart today. I'll examine mine because there are many today that honor God in action, but not in heart. For any religious exercise to replace true spiritual worship is a grave sin. We do not want to replace true spiritual worship with religious exercise, no matter how noble that exercise may seem. He was promoting the name of God, but he didn't know God. That's called religion. I speak with you about relationship. Having God with you in the fire, that's relationship. Well, Nebuchadnezzar promoted his Daniel's friends to high positions within the kingdom, verse 30. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Listen, he appointed, or had appointed, Daniel's friends as administrators. We saw this in the last chapter. Over the province of Babylon, but that was at Daniel's request. He didn't really know these men. He now made them rulers in the province of Babylon as well. They've been promoted. God's purpose in all of their trials was to promote them. I'm going to say that again. God's purpose in all of their trials was to promote them. That's true of us today. They were to be promoted to these higher positions of power within the world. Why? Well, remember, they exile exiled to Babylon as young men brought them to the place that God had called them to be. That was tough. That was difficult. And their trials gave them an opportunity to trust in God's ability to deliver them. That was tough. That was difficult. But now, the Jewish people had three more powerful advocates to care for and protect them during their captivity. Now they have four, including Daniel. Brothers and sisters, that was the real result of their godly stand. May we stand for him. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Bring us to a place of peace in our hearts, willing to accept the hatred of the world to continue to be faithful to you. And as these images, as these themes, these types speak of what will come in the future, we know that it's not over. There will come a day when perhaps we as well will be called to stand like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. May we not bow. May we preach the message that you sent your son Jesus to die in our place on the cross to save us from our sins. And he rose again on the third day to give us newness of life throughout all eternity. And then he not only rose, but he ascended into heaven, where even today he makes intercession. And he ever lives to make intercession on our behalf before the throne of God with the sure promise that we celebrate again today that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. We look forward to that day. We know that there will be trials and tribulations on the way. But as we fall into the fiery furnace, for standing for you, may we become ever closer to you as we're freed, as we're empowered, and as we're delivered. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.